Um, we've been doing a red letter study here this morning, uh, this year, really, and I uh, want to continue that on. Last week, we were talking about the calling of Levi as a third of three of these healing stories that are just put right together, right at the end of uh, Mark 1 and going across the bar line into Mark 2. And as we've said, when you see things together, put side by side in Scripture, pay attention, because they're meant to be understood together. They reinforce each other's meaning, they define each other, they give added illustrations. So it's really important to pay attention to proximity, because over and over again, it's there for a reason. It's there because the author is trying to show us something important. And this is what's going on here. Jesus is steadfastly being himself with all of these three always leading with mother, always leading with compassion, always leading with mercy, always leading with relationship. Before he ever gets into any kind of instruction, it's not about the head stuff. It's about the relationship, establishing that first. The rest can come after. But to start with that, and that's really what's going on. And so when he calls Levi out of his tax booth, one of the most hated people in uh, first century Judean society, he is calling him without any restitution, any amends, anything at all. He's just calling him because he sees something in him as a human being. And of course, Levi can't get up fast enough and and jump. So let's just read. Let's refresh our memory of what happened here. Luke 5, starting at verse 29. This is after Jesus calls him. Levi gives him a big reception at his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And of course, they were the only people who were going to be there because anyone who was a self-respecting Jew is not going to be seen in that house, is not going to take food from their hands, is not going to have anything to do with them because they stand so wildly outside the law. They are unclean. And they would become ritually unclean if they were to go into that house. So all the people that are there are tax collectors, Amha Eretz, which means people of the land, which means people who stand outside of the law. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John, okay, this is John the Baptist, his cousin, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And so he's alluding to the the Hebrew wedding ceremony wedding tradition. It's a seven-day-long affair. You have people over at your house, and they never leave for seven days, and you got to feed them, and you got to keep them hydrated, and you got to do all this stuff for them for seven days. But while you are there, while they are there with the bridegroom, with the bride, that's not the time or the place for them to be fasting. Remember, fasting is the body's reaction, natural reaction to loss, to grief, to trauma, You're not hungry when you're in the middle of of an intense loss. And so fasting became associated with loss, with repentance, with making changes. And celebration is the exact opposite of all of that. And so Jesus is showing them with a metaphor that they would all understand. 
This is what it's like right now. Well, we are here. We're choosing to celebrate. We're choosing to connect. We're choosing to eat and drink with each other, which in that culture also was a symbol of connection. It was actually a treaty between clans to eat together, to even share salt with each other. It was a connection point. It was a treaty. Now, Jesus is constantly having these conflicts with the Pharisees over and over again about Sabbath controversies, about purity codes, everything under the sun, over and over again. And it really paints the Pharisees in a bad light. But I want to let you know, and you probably have figured this out anyway, not all the Pharisees were corrupt. Not all the Pharisees were bad people. I mean, obviously, we got Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who came around, right? But obviously, there was more. It was just like the usual bell curve that you see, where you got the really awful ones, you got the really good ones, and then everybody else kind of falls in the middle of the haystack. It's kind of like that. It was like that with the Pharisees. It's like that with every single group. But the Pharisees stood for something. The Pharisees stood for a mindset. The Pharisees stood for a belief system that was endemic of what Judaism had become in the first century. This is 300 years in the making. But by the time Jesus was on the scene, it had become kind of the norm, this mindset, this way of looking at spirituality, looking at religion that the Pharisees had perfected in all of that time. And this is exactly what Jesus needed to deconstruct. This is what Jesus needed to break down in the minds of the people if they were ever going to have a shot at following this one and only way to the Father that he was here to both demonstrate and to teach. If they were ever going to be free enough to experience their God the way Jesus had experienced him, the way he was trying to teach them to experience, this mindset had to be broken down. So what's it all about? First of all, let's just start with their name, the Pharisees. That is an anglicization of perushim. Perushim will be the actual stress of the, of the word from the Hebrew. And perushim means the separated ones, those who are separated. Now, remember that Hebrew only notates the consonants, and so the vowels are absent, and you have to add them in. So there are some scholars that say, well, okay, it wasn't perushim, it was actually peroshim, which would have the same consonants, just a change in vowel. And peroshim means the interpreters. All right, so it's either the separated ones or the interpreters, and we really don't know, although I kind of lean toward the separated ones, but they both really work in terms of who the Pharisees were and this system that they had perfected. In terms of being the separated ones, they understood that righteousness meant that they had to separate themselves from everything that was not righteous, everything that was not lawful, everything that was ritually unclean everything that stood outside of their law, their way of living. So they separated themselves to ridiculous proportions. You know, I think I've mentioned here before, if you were walking down the street and a Pharisee was coming towards you, he would move all the way to the other side of the street so that even his robes don't even brush against you, making himself thus ritually unclean. This was the lengths to which they would go to make sure that they were separated. That's why there is no way in God's green earth that a Pharisee would have been caught dead inside of Levi's place because he was ritually unclean. But if the word is interpreters, then that means that they were the ones who interpreted the law, and that's exactly what they did. You have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees and other schools 
extracted from, delineated from, interpreted 613 written laws. Half of them, or about half of them, were laws of, of, of commandments of something to do, and the other half were things that you couldn't do. But 613 laws. And since those were sacred and could not be broken, then they would add hedges, what they called hedges around those laws, dozens and dozens of oral tradition commands that would keep you from breaking the actual written law. You'd have to break a whole bunch of hedges, a whole bunch of little written, uh, unwritten laws in order to get to that. They had this huge system that was vastly complex, and nobody could understand it. And so they became the power brokers. That was their power over the people, that the people had to go to them in order to find out if what they were doing was right or not, could they do it or not, what they had to do to make things right, and this gave the Pharisees their power over the people. So for them, righteousness, being righteous, being right with God, first of all meant perfect obedience to the law, and not just the written law, not just those 613, but also the oral tradition, which they held as highly in regard as the written tradition, in some cases actually took precedence over the written tradition, which created more sparring with Jesus, who was saying, hey, you're using your verbal laws in order to subvert the written laws. But this perfect obedience was what they were all about, and adherence to ritual purity, separation from anything that was unlawful, right? Anything and anyone that was unclean. And this made them very insular. This made them completely disconnected from the regular rhythms of everyday life. They didn't live in the real world with the people that they had this power over. Now, Jesus is going to give them a really concise answer. He's going to give them an incisive answer to their question, and one that makes perfect common sense. He just says, hey, you know, the physician isn't there for those who are well. The physician is there for those who are sick. So in order to be able to do any good as a physician, he's going to have to be with the people that you are separating from. What? I remember a pastor always telling me, don't clean your fish before you catch them. It's kind of like that. You had to be perfectly clean before you could come into the presence of the one who was supposed to be your teacher. Kind of backwards there. And that's common sense, Jesus is pointing out to them. So Jesus violates this precept of perfect obedience by not fasting. Now, these weren't written laws. Jesus never broke any written laws. There's no indication in Scripture that he ever did because he was a good Jew. But he was breaking the oral tradition all over the place. Now, the oral tradition had the the Jews fasting twice a week and four times a year, and they were praying three times a day. And it was a prayer and the fasting and the giving of alms that that were the three measures that the Pharisees used to measure righteousness of themselves and everybody else. This is how you judged. And they had very specific formulas for each. The formulas for almsgiving was crazy. It wasn't just a simple 10%. They had good tithes and medium tithes and terrible tithes, and there was a a percentage attached to all. It was crazy. And when you put everything into numbers that way, you're giving, then it's just a tax. It has nothing to do with the condition of your heart anymore. It's just another form of tax. And so Jesus violates their perfect obedience by not fasting when they would have fasted. This idea of the, the measures of righteousness And then he gives him this metaphor of the bridegroom, which is all about the celebration. He is opting for relationship. He is opting to celebrate and have this time with his friends where they're eating and drinking rather than going by 
the oral tradition. The fasting will come later, he says. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, the first chapter, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is all about Jesus trying to redefine the law, trying to redirect the people off of this mindset. And one of the things he says at Matthew 5, 20, is that unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way ever enter the kingdom of God. And you have to imagine what an effect this would have on his first followers hearing him say this for the first time. Surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? You know, if I haven't painted a vivid enough picture, these guys were fanatics. They were on steroids with this kind of stuff. How in the world was a regular person who's just living their lives and trying to go to work and feed their family and do the things that people do who weren't in this professional class, how in the world were they supposed to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees? They had to have been amazed at what Jesus said. They had to be bewildered and discouraged because nobody could surpass the Pharisees. No one could beat the Pharisees at their own game. They had set the game up in a way that only they could win, and they knew it. So Jesus is saying, it's not going to be about how well you play this game of the Pharisees. It's going to be realizing that the problem is the game itself. That's the problem. we got to change the game. And if we don't do that, then we're never going to get where Father is. If you have your inserts with you, take a look at it. And if you don't have one, maybe you can grab one from a, or look over somebody's shoulder. Have you ever seen this nine-dot puzzle before? Okay, so you've got uh, three rows of three, nine dots arranged in a square, and there's the directions. You've got to link all nine dots using four straight lines or fewer without lifting the pen off the paper and without tracing the same line more than once. So just look at that for a second and imagine yourself trying. How in the world can you do that? You only have four straight lines. You can't lift the paper off or the pen off the paper and you can't retrace a line. This makes people crazy. Now, once you've gotten a little bit crazy looking at that, flip your page over and take a look at the solution. As soon as you realize that you can get outside the box, then the solution is quite apparent. But see, we are so used to staying within the confines of something that appears to be the limits of our exposure that we don't even think about. Oh, yeah, I can go outside the box. This is exactly what Jesus is trying to get us to see. We are not going to beat the Pharisees at their own game. There is no way we're going to do that. If we stay within the box of the mindset and the belief system and the rules the way they have set it up, they are going to win every time, and we will never be able to solve this puzzle. We are going to surpass, we are going to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees by violating their box of separation and obedience. Legalism, that's the only way this is going to work. And Jesus does exactly that at every possible chance that he's got, both in order to connect and also in order to teach, to show, to model what this looks like. Jesus violates the box by not separating 
from those who are unclean. Remember, he touches the leper before he heals him. He forgives the paralytic before there is any kind of amends, before he really knows anything about him, other than he's got four really good friends who are tending to him, so he knows he's got community. And he calls him son, this intimate word that means family, it means connection, son. Your sins are forgiven. You're not living a life of separation. You're already there. And he accepts Levi before Levi is even thinking about making any sort of amends or restitution or changing his, his livelihood. He does all that. He touches, he forgives, he accepts without ritual purity. He moves outside the box in order to be able to solve this way of his. He does it by not obeying the oral tradition, by not fasting, by breaking the written, not breaking the written law, but breaking the the oral tradition, opting to celebrate with his friends, opting for more relationship, not not just unconnecting because there is a ritual that must be performed. He violates both of the tenets of the Pharisaical system. Now the Pharisees then respond by trying to score points with Jesus by appealing to John, his cousin, John the Baptist, his cousin, as an authority, right? He says, hey, John's disciples, they fast, we fast, why don't you fast? So he's trying to get John lined up on their side and shaming Jesus and, and trying to show him in this kind of light. But the truth of the matter is there was no love lost between John and the Pharisees either. They went at it back and forth. If we move back two chapters in Luke, go back to chapter 3, starting at verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7, skipping to verse 7, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, in Luke, this is really confusing. Why would John suddenly attack the crowds that are coming to him for baptism? Fortunately, Matthew 3 clears it up. The same story in the parallel, right? Because what Matthew tells us is that John, as he's baptizing, he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, and they're in the crowd with them, and those are the ones that he's addressing. Not the other people. It's those that he's addressing, because he knows their hearts. He knows who they are. He knows that they're there to trip him up, to test him, to find out whether he's orthodox enough, whether he's inside the box enough for them. And so he starts in with them. He calls them a brood of vipers. Now, if you don't know what a viper is, it's a snake, but it's a little snake. It looks kind of harmless, but it's lethal. It's really, really poisonous. But Jesus also calls the Pharisees uh, wolves in sheep clothing because the talit, the prayer shawls that they, that they wore, were made of sheepskin or actual, you know, they had the fur and everything on them. And so they were wolves inside the sheep that was a symbol of, of innocence and meekness and, and uh, the people of Israel themselves. And so we have these, 
metaphors to try to show the people what's really going on here. He says, who warned you to come, uh, you know, to try to get out from the wrath that is to come? Now, we hear that and we're going to think hell, we're going to think afterlife, we're going to think great judgments of God in the, in, in the spiritual realm. But that's not what he's talking about here. John is readily understood as the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so in that tradition, he would be warning the people here and now about a real danger here and now. So when the prophets came centuries before, it was to warn against the Babylonian invasions, it was to warn against the the Assyrian invasions, and a calamity that was on the horizon. If they didn't repent, if they didn't change directions, if they didn't move off the course that they were on, this calamity was going to befall them. And so John is coming in that tradition, and obviously the growing clash with the Romans is right on the horizon. They are pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And there's only so much of this that Rome is going to take. And so the fall of Jerusalem 40 years later is right on the horizon. This is what he's talking about. It's a temporal and and it's a very real disaster, the wrath that is to come. Jews believe that if if a prophet's prophecy didn't come true to the generation, within the generation to which it was uttered, this was a false prophet. And so he wouldn't be talking about something else. He would be talking about this right now. And then he, he got, hits him with Father Abraham, right? Because they saw themselves as having this pedigree from Abraham. And that alone put them on the inside. And he's saying, hey, he can raise children of Abraham up out of these stones. You think your pedigree, do you think your ethnicity really means anything at all? And furthermore, do you think your law really means anything at all? If it's not written on your heart, as Deuteronomy 6 tells them, if it isn't a part of who they were, if it didn't include genuine caring about the people that they were encountering, if it was just a legal fig leaf, your ethnicity, your pedigree, your law means nothing. This is what he's trying to get them to do. And now imagine what's going on here. John was probably an Essene. Now, you've probably all heard of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were excavated. It was in a community that was established out in the desert, away from all of the uh, cities. And the Essenes were one of the four sects, the main sects of of, uh, S-E-C-T-S, the main sects of of Israel in the first century. There were the Essenes, there were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the Zealots, who were the guerrillas. They were the ones who were trying to destabilize Rome by force. And the Essenes looked at everyone, the entire Jewish culture, and saw it as corrupt, saw it as impure. And so they actually moved out. You know, they were like somebody who goes out to Montana or Utah and, you know, builds a bunker. They were those kind of guys. So they went out and they separated themselves. And they were just going to wait for everyone to blow themselves up and then they were going to come in and reoccupy the land. But they were waiting for the Mashiach. They were waiting for the Messiah. The expected one is what they called this uh, figure to come and to lead them back into the land. Most likely, John was one of these. He is out in the wilderness when he gets the word of God. He might have been living at Qumran, for all we know. But he looks at these sects as being very suspect. He sees them as being impure. And he's calling the people to a greater purity. He's trying to get them to understand they need to up their game. And I suppose when you think about it, the people were probably amazed and they were bewildered and they were discouraged all over again because they ask him a question. Take a look starting at verse 10. 
And the crowds were questioning Jesus, saying, what then shall we do? I mean, wouldn't you? He's saying all these things to them. Well, then what do we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what has been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. See what John is trying to do? He's trying to take them to the ethical and moral high ground here. He can't, he's saying you can't just hide behind the letter of the law like some sort of fig leaf and remain untouched inside. It's not just about obedience. And it's not just about separation. It's about genuine care for others. It's about moving beyond the letter of the law into the spirit of the law. That's where he's trying to get them. And if you think about, I mean, just think about the present church. Think about what the Christian church looks like to most secular people who call it intolerant, who call it abusive, who don't see the love in there. Why would that be? Why should that be for a church that is saying that we're following Jesus, who is all about mercy and compassion? It's because, once again, we have fallen into this trap. We're all about obedience to law. We're all about separation from that which we deem impure. And we're not willing to move outside the box and find the connection points that Jesus is talking about. Separated and legal. That's the same issues that are at play in the first century that are at play in the 21st century. John is trying to take them beyond mere obedience. But here's the thing I want you to consider. Is he taking them out of the box? He's trying to take them to the moral high ground. But is he taking them out of the box? Because with John, still, there's an if-then statement, isn't there? If you will do this, if you will allow the law to be written on your heart, if you will move to the spirit of the law, if you will genuinely care about the well-being of others, then you are righteous. Then you will be approved. Then you will avoid the wrath that is to come. If you can follow the spirit of the law, there's still a box there, is what I'm trying to point out to you. It's a beautiful teaching. It's a great leap forward from what the Pharisees were practicing. John is in a bigger box than the Pharisees, if you want to take a look at it that way. But he's still in a box. What do we do then, the people are asking. And what he answers is still within the boxes that he understands as an Essene, as a person who is trying to up the ante and purify his culture, his nation, and his faith. There's a religious box. Prayer, worship, ritual, purity. Those are all the elements in the religious box. He's answering their question within, within a legal, I'm sorry, yeah, within a legal or moral box. Obedience, law, ethics, morality. He's answering within a social box. 
the care and compassion we talked about, social justice, that there is equality, that there is equity among people. He's still within the box. Now, Jesus makes a fascinating statement about John that I think can kind of put a finer point on what we're trying to say here. Take a look at Matthew 11, 11. Jesus says to his followers, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John, John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? What he's saying is that John is the greatest example of a human being working within the human box. The greatest example. But the least of anyone in kingdom, anyone who has stepped outside that box, is greater than he. Now that doesn't mean he's more loved, or she is more loved, more accepted by God but they are greater in the sense that they are now able to receive that love. They are able to see that love for what it really is and not just through the lens of the box itself. Now, John, John is a real deal. I mean, he's an amazing figure. But Jesus is still trying to make this distinction. He's saying, you know how much I respect John. I know how much you respect John. Many of Jesus' followers came from John. They were John's followers first. John was referring his followers to Jesus as the one who really they needed to go to next. He said, I must decrease as he increases. John is the real deal here. He's not out for himself. Jesus is trying to make a distinction here that is so important for us to understand that he and John are occupying different worlds even though when he talks about kingdom, he is talking about something that is really alien to us because we are still inside the box. To be in kingdom, which is Jesus' hallmark, what he's trying to get everyone to be able to do, to actually have the quality of life when we are completely present to God, when we have emptied out everything that separates our, ourselves from God's presence and from the understanding of God's true nature, to be in that kingdom is to step outside of whatever box that we have adopted, to move beyond rational logic, beyond our sense of cause and effect, beyond crime and punishment, beyond our sense of justice even, beyond any if-then statements that keep us locked into performance for approval. And this is something that is really difficult for us. To move beyond justice, how is that right? How is that moral? How is that ethical? I thought God was about justice. But when you think about God's love, the love that Jesus is trying to get across, it is absolutely unjust. It's indiscriminate. It isn't given to people who have earned it, people who are doing right things, following the law. It rains down like sun and rain, water, on the just and the unjust alike is completely indiscriminate. How is that fair? So many of us have talked about this and felt that sting of unfairness when someone gets something that is completely undeserved. This is what Jesus is trying to get across 
that he and John are in different worlds. And if we are still in our box, the box that makes sense to us as a human being, the box within which the, the, the physical world operates, then we haven't even scratched the surface of who God really is. We're not going to be able to reason our way to God. And we're not going to be able to obey our way to God. The very tools we are using with logic and obedience are the problem. They are our prison. They are the limitation. They keep us from going where we need to go. We need to get completely out of that vehicle and into another. Think about an airplane. I know I've used this metaphor before. But an airplane needs air resistance in order to gain lift. It's the shape of the wing that does it. You know, because it's curved on the top and flat on the bottom, the air has to go faster around the top than it does on the bottom. That pulls apart the air molecules, creates lift. That's what it is. You need enough speed and you need air in order to get lift in an airplane. So you can never in an airplane be able to get into orbit. Because what happens as you get higher and higher? The atmosphere thins out. There's not enough lift to continue to get you out into orbit. So if where you want to go is somewhere off this world, an airplane is not going to get you there. It's the fastest mode of travel anywhere on the, on the globe. A jet airplane will get you there fastest. But the least of a rocket with escape velocity is greater than that if where you want to go is in orbit. And so we're seeing what Jesus is trying to tell us. John is the airplane. He's the greatest mode of travel across the face of the earth within the human box. But if where you want to go is kingdom, then you need to get out of that vehicle and into a completely different vehicle. This is what Jesus is trying to get across here. And he does it over and over again with each healing story, with his actions, with the way he operates, and with his teaching. Like I said, Matthew 5 is just example after example. Consider just one, right? He says, now you have heard of old that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that was a lex talionis. That was a law of retribution. That was actually a very good thing, as brutal and as horrible as it may sound to us, right? That I'm going to take your eye because you took mine, or your tooth because I took mine, or a life for a life. But if you consider the honor-shame society from which this comes, so if any affront was visited from one tribe to another, they had to visit it back, and then they had to visit it back, and whole wars were started over something relatively simple. The Lex Talionis put a stop to that, limited the damage that could be done. But Jesus is saying, that's your box. That's the way you understand this is supposed to work. But I want to tell you that. If someone slaps you on your right cheek, offer the left one as well. Now, what is he talking about here? First of all, in that society, everybody used their right hand for everything. The left hand was impure. So if someone slaps you on your right cheek, that's a backhand slap. That is the slap from a superior to a subordinate. That's a slap from a master to a slave, a husband to a wife. Let's be honest here. From a parent to a child. It is an absolute insult. It is a degrading insult to be slapped that way. We have every right to want to avenge ourselves. We have every right to return evil for evil. And Jesus is saying, don't do it. Actually, offer them the other cheek as well. He's trying to break our reliance on what we think we know and we understand. 
And time after time through Matthew 5, he gives us example after example of what this looks like as he redefines the way the law is supposed to work. This is the only way to the Father. The only way to a love unlike anything that we've ever experienced. Anything that we even think that could be righteous by the rules of our own box. Jesus is saying we've got to clear out those boxes. We've got to clear out those core beliefs. He calls it dying to self, letting everything go that we think defines us, that we identify with, and let go of anything that keeps us from accepting this love that doesn't look right to us, that we don't have to earn, that we can never lose, that just is, that itself exists. John doesn't get this. He doesn't get any of it. You know, in the run-up to Matthew 11, 11 that we just talked about, why did Jesus even make that statement? It's because by this time, John is in prison. You know, he's relentless. He's speaking truth to power. For him, everything is black and white. And he tells the king what he thinks, and the king puts him in prison. And eventually, he gets his, uh, his head taken from him. But he's still in prison, and he's wondering what in the world is going on with Jesus. He's the one that he's been referring all his followers to, and Jesus isn't doing the things that he was supposed to do because he understood him to be the expected one. And he says that. He sends some of his followers out to Jesus and says, ask Jesus this, are you the expected one? He uses the exact phrase that the Essenes used for the Messiah. Are you the expected one or should we wait for someone else? Jesus is losing his confidence. Jesus is not acting the way he expected. Jesus is violating his box and he's trying to qualify this. And of course, says. Jesus says, you tell John, you know, and he quotes Isaiah. And he says, the sick are being healed, the blind see, the crippled walk, the, the imprisoned are being freed. He's telling him these spiritual happenings so that John can see, and John will connect to Isaiah and know what he's talking about. Does John finally get it? We're not told. I think he does. But he doesn't get it then. He doesn't understand He's still inside the box. All of Jesus' followers, his closest followers, are still inside the box. They're still looking at Jesus as gaining temporal power that they can be part of. They want to sit on his right hand and his left, right up to the crucifixion. They don't get it. They're still thinking macro. They're still thinking political power. And they're looking for those steps to be part of that power. But Jesus is always teaching and acting and working in the micro, in individual relationships, Remember when Mary comes and breaks open an expensive bottle of perfume and pours it all over his feet, and Judas is incensed because that money could have been used to serve the poor. And Jesus said, Judas, you're always going to have the poor with you. That sounds pretty callous to our ears, but what he's saying is these macro systems are always going to be in place. There's always going to be haves and have-nots. There's always going to be injustice. You're always going to have the poor with you. If you focus on the macro all the time, then you will always be incensed by all these rights and unrighteousness and all these injustices that you can't ever change or fix. But you can in the micro. That's where we can fix things. And he says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. Mary's single-minded devotion to Jesus, her love for Jesus, blows out any other consideration in that moment. 
that's just what she needed to do to show her absolute love and abandonment to that love. Judas never got that. But Jesus is always redirecting us back. Can you get out of your head? Can you get out of the theoretical? Can you come back to what's right in front of you? Can you live there and see how this all works? I wanted to read just a little bit out of a movie that you probably never saw, never even heard of. It's called The Year of Living Dangerously. How many have heard of The Year of Living Dangerously? Okay, a couple. Great movie. Had an impossibly young Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver, and Linda Hunt actually paid, played a male role. But the, the, the setup is, is that it's set in Indonesia at a time of real political unrest. And Mel Gibson is an Australian journalist, a Westerner who comes, and of course he's tall and beautiful and all the things he is, right? And he befriends this little Asian man, this little Indonesian man who's played by Linda Hunt, and uses her to be able to get places that he couldn't get on his own as a Westerner to get the story, right, to get the real scoop. And she is trying to instruct him and get him to see as a Westerner the plight, what was really going on in the minds and the hearts and the lives of her people, these Asians, these Indonesians. And there's this one scene where she's taking him for the first time through the slums of Indonesia. And in voiceover, she says, he says, most of us become children again when we enter the slums of Asia. And last night I watched you, watched you walk back into childhood with all its opposite intensities, laughter and misery, the crazy and the grim, toy town and a city of fear. And then she, or he, Billy says, and the people asked him saying, what then shall we do? She's quoting right out of Luke here. You know, it's kind of, she says it sort of to the night and they're walking through, what then shall we do? And Guy says, what's that? It's from Luke chapter three, verse 10. What then must we do? Tolstoy asked the same question. He wrote a book with that title. He got so upset about the poverty in Moscow that he went one night into the poorest section and just gave away all his money. You could do that now. You could do that now. Five American dollars would be a fortune to one of these people. Wouldn't do any good. Just be a drop in the ocean. Ah, that's the same conclusion Tolstoy came to. I disagree. Oh, what's your solution? Well, I support the view that you just don't think about the major issues. You do whatever you can about the misery that's right in front of you. Add your light to the sum of light. You think that's naive, don't you? Yep. It's all right. Most journalists do. We can't afford to get involved, he says. Typical journal's answer, she says. She's advocating an illogical illogical immersion here. An immersion in the micro to see what's right in front of you. To not think with your head. Not to get out into rational answers. And she's trying to get this Westerner to break out of his box and see what she sees about her people and the needs that they really have. That maybe he could write about them. Maybe he could change some other Western ideas and thoughts. But you've got to get out of the box to do it. 
We will never see the world aright from inside our box. Jesus is adamant about this. We need to get out of the box. What is our box? As you're sitting there right now, are you in a box? Of course you are. We all are. Are you able to see outside your box, even as you have to live within the realities of our box? That's the key, because we're always going to have to do that. Our lives dictate certain things. But can we also see with a second sight how we can violate the box and make a different kind of solution? Our box is a box of our own creation. It's whatever we have accepted. It's whatever we have become convinced of. It's our worldview. It's reality as we believe it to be. And never forget this. The reality we believe is the reality we endure. Put that on your fridge. The reality we believe is the reality we endure. If we believe it, that's what we're going to see. That's what becomes true for us. That's all we will see through that filter. And what do we believe? Humans believe in the world's rules, in the laws of physics that dictate certain things. We believe that there is no free lunch because that's what we've always had to experience our entire lives. There's no free lunch. Entropy dictates that. Everything goes from order to disorder. It never goes in the other direction. There are limited resources, and we have to deal with those limited resources. There's a zero-sum game here. If I get something, it's going to come out of somebody else's pocket, out of somebody else's hide. We must perform to get our share of those limited resources. There's no other way to do it. And because of all of this, life is fearful. That's our box. That's our human box. Look how that is reflected in our religious beliefs that we still have to perform. Now for God's approval, for God's favor, in order to get the things that we need spiritually, we still have to perform. We have to obey. We have to separate. We have to think legally. That works in the business world. That works in our physical world. It does not work in the spiritual world. And that's what Jesus is adamant about. Jesus is trying to break the boxes. Everything that describes physical life in terms of the way we look at Father God, the way we look at Mother God. Because in the Spirit, in God's kingdom, there are unlimited resources. There are free lunches. Every lunch is free. And without any kind of performance for approval, there is a fearless vulnerability. There is a happy dependence that we can start to realize as people. And this is really good news. There is no limit. There is no condition. There is no cost or discrimination to God's love that we call grace. It's just there. It self-exists. And yet, here's the hard part. It will cost us everything in terms of the boxes that we have to let go of in order to just freely receive this love that is being offered we have to let go of all of our boxes everything that we've experienced everything that we've accepted in order to see the news as good to see the gift for what it is freely given and there's very few people who are willing to do this very few people who can let go because when you let go of these boxes you're also letting go of your control or what you believe is your control and that's terrifying
We prefer to continue to acquire because that gives us a sense of control. It's just an illusion, but it's something to completely let go of control. That's difficult. So what Jesus is really asking at bottom line is, are you ready, are you willing, are you able to get out of control? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to consider that everything that you think is true is just what you've accepted as true? And that's frightening. But if you are, Jesus said, and the way he would say it was, you are not far from the kingdom. That's where he's trying to bring us. Break the boxes. See what happens. Experience life from outside those nine dots and see what it looks like. Let's pray. Once again, Father, we're grateful for everything that you give to us. We're grateful for this teaching. We're grateful for these examples. We're grateful for the people that we have known in our lives that exemplify this. Even if we didn't understand it, even if we resisted it, that maybe now at this time when we're ready as students, we can look back and we can remember the words or the example and it'll make a different kind of sense so that we can start to take steps in the direction that will get us to the place where we can just accept this gift that you're freely offering us, that we can start to live without fear, without thinking that everything has to be scratched out of our lives, including our relationship with you. Father, if we can just know that our relationship with you is solid and sound and everything that you're saying that it is, we can deal with the rest of this. But we need that backstop. We need that foundation. Help us to leave no stone unturned. Help us to be willing to step outside of our box, as frightening as it is, to find you there waiting for us, never having left, never having been anywhere else. Thank you, Lord. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand.